Other Sunday mornings, uh, 10.30, really encourage you to get here at 10 and hang out and enjoy each other on the patio. Uh, I just cannot seem to overemphasize the importance of just spending time together in informal ways. That's just an easy time. And so really would encourage you to be out there at 10 and to be in here at 10.30. That's the hard thing, isn't it? Because you get to so enjoying that that uh, it's hard to break that up. But uh, then come in at 10.30. On uh, Sunday night, uh, December 18th, uh, our Christmas uh, choirs, our adult choir and children's choir, We'll be coming together and we'll be singing that evening, so that's just an evening of Christmas music, always an easy and good opportunity to invite people to come to. And then you can see our Christmas Eve service is at 5 p.m., one service this year, 5 p.m., it's on Saturday, we figured we didn't need to work around work schedules. Those of you that are in retail, it doesn't make any difference if it's 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. or when it is, probably. Um, And so at 5 p.m., we're going to share the service with the Armenian Christian Fellowship. Uh, they're going to actually start meeting here the 1st of January uh, in the afternoon after we're done. Really excited to share this because Christ came as a Savior to the world. And, uh, and so that will be really good. And uh, so we'll spend that time together Christmas Eve. And, um, and so just encourage you to begin working around that and figuring out how how to make that a part of your life. On Christmas Day, we're going to meet at 10.30, very, uh, probably most informal service we probably have ever had. And uh, so just come. Uh, we're going to just sing Christmas carols. We'll do some uh, little devotional. Uh, everybody who's birth, well, you can bring them in in the womb too. Just bring them in. And uh, all ages will be in here. No nursery, no children's, no nothing. Okay. And uh, it's really going to be a special time. So I know it may be hard to get here, but if you get here, we're going to have a good time together. And then uh, New Year's Day, uh, we'll spend the time dedicating ourselves around the Lord's Supper to a new year that the Lord has given us, assuming He doesn't return between now and then. And uh, and we kick off that morning with a potluck breakfast at 9 a.m. So anyway, that's kind of what's coming up there. Well, our theme this Christmas is simple and significant, and uh, the main point of this is, is many of us function on autopilot. Have you noticed that? And we don't want this Christmas just to be like every other Christmas. Uh, We believe that God has something significant for each and every one of us, because none of us are just like Jesus yet. And we have people around us who need the touch of Christ this Christmas. And we just really don't want to miss the opportunity uh, that is right in front of us. And the reality is, is that significant things happen in our lives, and we become more significant through real simple things. And so we're just looking at some simple things that make for great significance. And, uh, and I, as I said, that's just the principle. Most every significant discovery happened by somebody realizing something simple and understanding that simple truth in its significance and then making an application, thus it becomes significant. And uh, it's just the way it works. So, for example, the French chemist Louis Pasteur was beginning to experiment with bacteria in 1860s because people didn't know what caused diseases. 
And through his studies, he learned about uh, microorganisms, and he realized that through the simple washing of the hands, you could kill a lot of bacteria. And all of a sudden, doctors quit going from doing, uh, working on cadavers to delivering babies, which created a horribly high infant mortality rate. And they began to wash their hands. What a change that brought. A simple thing that brings great significance. When you actually do it, it has a significant impact, right? And so we even know that today. How many of us heard from our mom? Wash your hands, right? Well, people didn't know that through many millenniums. So here's a picture of how this whole works. Uh, It's very complex. All of the stuff going on in our bodies is pretty complex, right? And yet, uh, there's a simple truth of how washing the hands can kill most or a lot of bacteria. I don't even know it's most, but a lot of bacteria and prevent disease. That's significant. It brings great significance. It will have no effect in my life, though, unless I actually wash my hands, right? When I wash my hands, then what is significant? what has great significance becomes significant and prevents the spread of disease. Now, when we bring God and why we're on this planet into, uh, into view, at about 30,000 feet, if we just view this world, we see this. We see that God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. It's repeated several times throughout the Scriptures. That's just the high view of what this whole thing is about. And we see that in the Garden of Eden, when God began it all, that's exactly the way it worked. God was their God, and it was called paradise. And there was no dissonance in relationships between Adam and Eve and God and between Adam and Eve with each other. There was nothing broken in their bodies There was nothing in creation that was out of order whatsoever. That's the simple truth, and that's the way it worked. And boy, you talk about a life. Unfortunately, sin entered the world, and that made it very complex. In fact, two things make it complex at that point. God is an infinite being, and Sin being insane, and I use that word insane, comes from some of the early church fathers who talk about the insanity of sin. Don't ever try to figure out sin. It is insane. It makes no sense whatsoever. And so you often wonder, why did they do that? Don't try to figure it out. It's insane. It's totally insane. But God being infinite and sin being more Sin being insane makes this a very complex world, right? It makes each one of us very complicated, right? I mean, how do we even know our own hearts? I mean, we could go all over the place on this. Here's the beauty of what God does with that complex thing He gives us His Word and He gives us His Spirit. He takes all of that complexity and He brings it down to us in very simple things. Those simple things are expressed through His Word, and He's given us the Spirit to help us to know the Word and to make the application to our own hearts and lives. So, for example, those simple things would be like the commandments. 
which Adam and Eve had in the garden. Eat of everything that you see to the fill. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat of it, you will die. Pretty simple, right? Huge significance. And so it comes to us through commandments. It comes to us through promises. It comes to us in the Word through descriptions of things. It comes to us through examples. It comes to us in a multitude of ways. But the reality is God has given us this book, and as Radio pastor J. Vernon McGee used to say, he puts the cookies on the bottom shelf (laughs) so we can get it because he wants us to live a significant life, and a significant life is defined by him. Nobody has greater significance for us than God has for us. That's one of those simple truths of what's going on. So last week, for example... Uh, we went to, to Galatians chapter 4, and we said, here's the deal with Christmas. In the fullness of time, when history was ripe, because God's the God of history, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. That means that Jesus, when He came, was the Son of God. That means He was fully God. He sent forth His Son, born of a woman. That means that He was also became a full person, a full human being, born under the law. Even though He was God, when He became a person, He was obligated to keep all the law of God. And so that's why Christmas happened. That's what happened when Christmas happened. The question is, okay, What's the significance of all of that? What's the point of all that? And he goes on in the next verse, and he says, so that we might, so that he might redeem us, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's the significance of Christmas, so that he might redeem us from under the law and we might receive the adoption as sons. And you remember we talked about that whole thing, that uh, He has to redeem us because we're under the law. The law points out our guilt because we're guilty. Satan has uh, ownership over us, and therefore we're slaves of Satan, the elementary things of the world. And, And God redeems us. The word redeem literally is used to purchase a slave out from under slavery to set them free. Jesus came so that He might become a person, become one of us, die on a cross to pay for our sins, be resurrected the third day so that He might purchase us out of the slave market of sin, but not just to set us free, but to set us free in Christ as a rich heir of God so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so that's the significance of Christmas. So I think it's a big deal. What do you think? I mean, that's a huge deal. In fact, it's so huge that we can't even figure this out on our own. The Word isn't even enough to help us. And so he says in the next verse, just as he sent his own son into the world, he sent the Spirit into our hearts so that he would cause our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. 
so that we would have the spirit of adoption and we would recognize, I am no longer a slave to this world. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm not a slave to anything. I am a son of God. I am as rich as my father is because all of his riches are mine in Christ. And we can't figure that out. And so he gives us the spirit so that we would live in dependency. And notice the word cry. What's the word cry imply to you? What does it imply? It doesn't imply anything. What's it just say? What does the word cry mean? When you're somebody crying, what do you think? Yeah, all kinds of things. Desperation. They don't care about who knows. Uh, help. Right? That's what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. We don't care who knows that my Father in heaven is my daddy and my Father. We're unashamed of that. The Spirit causes us to cry out. I sometimes wonder how often I've stumped that down. Oh, I don't want to cry out. I want to act sophisticated. Man, how screwed up is that? And how self-destructive is that? And so the Spirit comes into our hearts so that we would understand the significance. And then it moves on in the next verse to point out how this becomes significant. Therefore, you are no longer slaves. You are sons and heirs through God. That's when a person takes the application to themselves. Many people would know the significance of Christmas, but they've never put their faith and trust in Christ. They have not yet been redeemed and have become a son of God through this marvelous work of Christ becoming a baby. And if that's you this morning, man, this morning, right now, you need, you need to say, I want to be redeemed. I want to be a son of God. I want to live in the riches of the Father and God of heaven. I mean, he is rich. Camilla and I were laughing this morning because we, along with the Glovers, made these crazy trees. And we were laughing this morning. You know, God just said a word and a forest was created. We've about killed ourselves making these blasted things. <laughs> I don't know if I was living as a son or not. There's a big difference in living on our resources and living in His resources. And so how do you, how do you, how do you have what He's done at Christmas become your own reality? You agree with God. You need to be redeemed. You want to become an adopted son. You believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe what He has said. And the Spirit begins to cry out within your heart, the God in heaven is my Father. And then you just commit yourself to live the rest of your days with Him as your daddy, with Him as your Father. And you just learn how to cry out more and more and more often. And so the simple thing that we encouraged last week is that we just simply need to organ our lives to focus on Him. Or to live with God as our Father may have been an even better way to say it. So that we can be significant. So we can live as sons. So that we can live as heirs through God. And that's why we put this journey together. 
especially for those of you who have no consistent daily time of listening to and talking to your father. No time where you stop. I'm not talking about talking all the way going. That's healthy, good. But he's worth stopping and focusing upon. And so in this, there's a daily reading, and, uh, and it just continues. We'll wind our way down. Uh, there's a coloring book that goes with it. It looks just like it. It just says coloring book instead of journey down there. And, uh, and so if you weren't here last week, there's some of these back in the, in the lobby. I just, I really beg, especially those of you who have no consistent time daily of spending with your father so you're living in his resources and in relationship with him, I beg you to begin to do this. Now, don't go back and try to start at the beginning, okay? If you're not doing this, that just causes depression. Just begin today or begin tomorrow. We already gave you the summary. And the reality is, as you do this individually, you do this with friends, you do this as a couple, you do this as a family, you're going to see all things, kinds of things pop up that we didn't even talk about this morning. I mean, we've had a really rich time this week of just the kids and each one of us making observations about who our Father in heaven is and what it means to live as His children. So I just want to beg you, if you do not have a daily time with the God of the universe, who is your Father if you know Him, make time for Him. I know it will be probably the hardest thing you do. It's a simple thing. Just as washing the hands kills a lot of bacteria, opening our hands to God and listening to His Word together causes us to live in the riches of our relationship with Him. It is really that simple. Begin your time by just crying out to God, saying, help God. We're going to read some of your word. You do what you want. You say what you want. Make sense? Is that a deal? Is that a deal? Yeah. I just cannot beg you enough, especially those of you that just do not have any consistent time there. Now, here this morning, here's the second. Here's what we're going to do this morning. You thought that was it, huh? Okay, here's the simple truth we're looking at this morning. I mean, it comes right out of that passage as well, but we're going to look at two examples this morning uh, that are part of the Christmas story. Here's the simple truth that we want to notice this morning and really force into our hearts. God gives gifts. He chooses who, He chooses what, and He chooses how, okay? And here's the significance of that. I messed it up in your notes so you can change that. The significance is He knows best how to bless. Do you believe that? God knows best how to bless. I mean, He put you together in your mother's womb. He has a plan. He really does have a plan for you to have a significant life, for me to have a significant life. And so, how does that become significant as we humbly receive what God gives? That's how we experience the significant life for which God brought us into this world. Now, it doesn't mean that it will be the easiest life. doesn't mean that it will be pain-free. doesn't mean that it will be angst-free. So don't hear that in any of what I'm saying. 
I'm talking about a significant life that makes a difference and makes the difference that God intends for our lives to make. And so, um, we're going to look at two examples this morning out of the Christmas story of this truth. So, turn over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And I'm just going to read down through this and make some comments as we go along. But two very different examples that we can learn from. Actually, every single person in the Bible is an example of this, either positively or negatively. But it's cool to look at the ones at Christmas time that were part of that, what God did there. So let's begin in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. Verse 5 begins with this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Now, that is a mouthful. That sets the whole setting for what was going on in the days in which Christmas is about to take place. I mean, we're a year or so out from it here, but this sets the whole scene. And it's important to understand the circumstances in Israel as, as these few words are said. So, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, these were very dark times for the nation of Israel for several different reasons. Over 2,000 years before, we looked at Abraham and how God gave Abraham and Sarah the, the baby Isaac. Isaac and his wife had two sons. Who are they? Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau had a really difficult relationship, a fighting relationship oftentimes, then they'd have times of reconciling, and all of their descendants down through history have had the same thing. This is kind of a concept that sometimes we do not get as Americans very well, that oftentimes if your ancestors 15 generations ago had a beef with each other, you continue to carry that on. And it was very much a part of the, of the people in the, in, the, in the whole Middle East over there. And so the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob are constantly fighting back and forth. You see this in uh, the book of what? Esther with Haman and Esther. It's going on right here because Herod is a descendant of Esau. He's an Edomite. And so, God has, as a ruler over the Jewish people, an Edomite when He's going to bring Christ into the world who's a descendant of Jacob. Crazy, isn't it? How God sets this stuff up. And so, there's all this going on. Besides that, Herod is the first one to ever declare himself king. The other people had just been rulers. He says, I am the king of Judea. I am the king of the land of Judea. I am the king exercising rulership over the Jews. That is what's going on as Jesus is going to bring the legitimate king of the Jews into the world. Now, under the rulership of King Herod, he brought a lot of non-Jewish people to come in and live in the land. 
That would have been normal. That's what he would have expected to do. And so he brought many non-Christians or non-Jewish people into the world. Besides that, he built all kinds of temples to all kinds of deities in Israel. Now, he also did a major building project on the temple, the, the temple in Jerusalem. But even that, to a religious Jew, was a scandal that a pagan ruler would build the temple of God? You remember, God wouldn't let David build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed. Solomon had to be the one to build the temple. Herod builds the temple for God. And so the, the exercise in the ruling of evil people with great historical animosity over the Jews is rampant during these days. To add to all of that, um, God, through the years of Israel's history, had often spoken through prophets and had often given them inspired books, which we know as the Old Testament. For 400 years, they had had no fresh prophet with a word from heaven. It seemed like heaven was quiet. Seems like it was nothing happening up there towards them. And the last words that God had sent through the prophet Malachi were these, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." For 400 years, no fresh word. Now they had the whole Old Testament, but they'd been used to prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And now heaven has become silent as well. It was in many ways the worst of times for the Jewish people. Yet God was going to make it the best of times. For you see, during these dark, dark days, like all dark days, God always has a foothold from which He will work for the good of His people and those who will believe upon Him. And that's what the verse goes on to describe, His foothold. This foothold always involves a person or a group of people. Typically, these are people that nobody else would ever notice. In fact, they don't even notice that they're the foothold through which God is going to bring blessing. They're just continuing on with their normal lives of working to be faithful to God, living quietly, when God comes knocking on their lives to say, <laughs> I got bigger plans for you. I brought you into this world for a more significant impact than you have caught a glimpse of. Let me tell you about it. And that's what happens here. Zacharias is the man. Elizabeth is his wife. We'll see that Mary and Joseph were two others. We see the angels. 
We say Simeon and Anna. None of those characters understood that they were the foothold of God to bring great blessing to other people. Well, let's continue on with Zacharias here. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abadji, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And so, here we're told that they were priests. Um, Zacharias, had, could, he could have married any Jewish woman. He went above and beyond, and he married a woman of the tribe of Aaron, the high priest. And, um, and it talks about their character. Man, wouldn't you love it to have that be the description of you? They were righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. That does not mean they were perfect. What it means is they were a couple who walked by faith according to God's Word. Did they sin? Yes, they sinned. Romans tells us that God looks over those sins because He knew Jesus was coming to pay for them. But they were faithful to the Lord, and yet they could not have a child. And in those days especially, this well, let me, let me say this first. Anytime a couple who wants children can't have ch- children, it is one of the greatest griefs that I'm aware of. What this culture did was added guilt to grief. What they did was they took something that God says is a blessing, and they say, if you don't have that blessing, something's wrong with your relationship with God. Totally forgetting that God doesn't give the same blessings to all people. And so, in the Jewish culture of that day, one of the Jewish rabbis said, there were seven people who were excommunicated from God. And the list began with a Jew who has no wife, or a Jew who has a wife and who has no children. They were very evil days. And thus, Zacharias and Elizabeth lived under that cultural, not just personal grief, but the guilt that was put upon them by their culture. Some estimates say there were 20,000 priests during the days that Zacharias was a priest, and uh, obviously it didn't take that many to serve in the temple, so what they did was they split them up into groups, and, uh, and, and every priest would serve two weeks a year separated, but they would come and they would serve in the temple for two weeks out of a year, then they would go back home and continue to serve as a priest, just ministering to people in whatever their hometown was. And, uh, and when they would come for their week of service, there were some opportunities in the temple that were considered more uh, prestigious than others, and they would simply cast lots for those. At the very top of that list was the privilege of being able to, to go in beyond uh, to where the sacrifices were into the holy place, just short of the holy of holies. And there was a certain number of priests that would go in there twice a day to, to renew the showbread and the other things, but to, to bring in fresh incense because there was an altar and incense right up against the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And that represented the, the prayers of the people ascending to God. 
And so, we're told here, well, let's read verse 8. Now, it happened while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This was the most prestigious thing any priest could do, was to burn incense. Because as he would burn incense and and intercede as a representative for all the nation of Israel during that time, all the other priests would leave and he'd be all by himself in in the holy place, in the holy place. God had an appointment for Zacharias, so guess what? He got selected by the lot. The lot is in the lap of the Lord. He gets this. Can you imagine his emotions as he goes into the holy place and, uh, and everybody outside is busy praying as he goes in representing them all? And, and, uh, and we're told that as he's in there, as the other priests withdraw, as he's interceding on the behalf of the nation of Israel, God made sure that he ended up in that position because he had another appointment with him because he had dispatched an angel from heaven, verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was, this has got to be one of the great understatements, troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. Now let's just stop there for just a moment because obviously um, the angel says that your petition has been answered. Now there's a couple, couple things going on here. And he, and he says very clearly, you're going to have a son. My suspicion is that that is a petition that God, that uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth had made to God thousands of times during their lifetime, but as they got to the point of being unable to bear children because of age, they quit praying that prayer. And I think particularly the petition that is being referenced here is that as Zacharias is in there praying, interceding on the behalf of Israel, he would have been praying for the Messiah to come. He would have been praying for the deliverer of Israel to come. I mean, these were dark days. God, help us. And what Zacharias didn't know is the answer to those two separate petitions was the same answer. I'm going to give you a son. And he's going to pave the way for the forerunner. He'll be the forerunner to the Messiah. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. The only person that we're specifically told was filled in his mother's womb. By the way, you might compare this verse with Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine. Wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And so it says very clearly, from his mother's womb, he was to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he was never to numb himself through wine or any intoxicating drink. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. That tells you something about the spiritual climate of Israel. They needed this. 
It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirits and powers of Elijah. What were the last words that they knew from the Old Testament? The angel quotes those verses to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Imagine that. The final words God gave Malachi in the Old Testament time, he picks up with through Gabriel to to Zacharias in the temple. The heavens may have been silent, but God was working a plan. And Zacharias is the first one to come to realize this. Now, he's a little slow on the uptake as we see there in verse 18 and following. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Now, it's hard to know what's going on there, but we get the divine interpretation of Gabriel in verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Now, as soon as he says, I'm Gabriel, Zacharias probably would have gone back to the book of Daniel where Gabriel is named as a messenger. And so that, that could have been, oh, I know this angel. And Gabriel goes on and says, and behold, um, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Probably a reference to not being able to hear or speak because you did not believe my words. Just say, ouch. Ouch. Now we know that when Gabriel came with this message, I mean, here's a faithful man who's been serving with his wife all these years, but this was too much of a stretch. He just could not bring himself to believe this. So what he asked for is he says, how will I know this is true? Give me a sign that this will happen. Gabriel says, you got your sign. (laughs) Your tongue is not going to speak and your ears are not going to hear anything. Until the words which I've said will be fulfilled in their proper time. And so the people are waiting outside after the week is over. Uh, He goes home and somehow communicates with Elizabeth. You talk about women who are frustrated because their husbands don't talk. Here's one that just got an amazing message and he can't talk. And uh, so anyway, he goes home. She conceives. And go over to verse 64. Because when the baby is born, and as uh, they're determining the name, and he says the name will be John, look at verse 64. At once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. And so, as soon as he could, what's the first thing that came out of his mouth? Praise to God. Blessed be God. And, uh, And that's the way that God works. So, Here's the deal. Here's what we can learn from Zacharias. He, he knows that God gives gifts. He chooses who, what, and how. And he understands the significance. He knows best how to bless. I think Zacharias, if we had put those PowerPoint slides up before he went into the temple that day, I think he would have said, amen. What do you think? I think he would have said, amen, amen, amen. But all of a sudden when God says, you, 
He says, ooh, ooh. No, that, that's, that's more than I can handle. That's too big of a step. You mean in all of Israel, in all the darkness, you're going to break your silence by talking to me? And you're going to call me to be a part of your redemptive work? And he just says, yep, I'll give you nine plus months to think about this one. <laughs> Not going to let you be distracted at all. And God brought him into that significant life where he humbly received what God gave. God did not revoke the gift. He just discipled him into believing, right? And discipleship often involves discipline. But he got him there. He got him there. Well, verse uh, 26 uh, jumps us forward a little bit in time. In the sixth month, and we know that it's the six months of Elizabeth's uh, pregnancy down there, because you can go down to verse 36 and see that. But here Gabriel is dispatched again. Last time he came to the Jerusalem and the temple, this time he goes to, a, to Nazareth. And not to the temple, but to a, to a home. Last time he came to a priest who had been faithfully serving him for many, many years. This time he comes to a young, engaged woman. who's very excited about getting married. And so it says, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Let's just stop there for a moment because that says a lot too. Nazareth was about 70 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and it was on a main route between Jerusalem and the, the port cities of Tyre and Sidon. Consequently, there was a lot of traffic uh, from Tyre and Sidon down to Jerusalem. It was the major port city for, uh, for that whole area. And there was a lot of Roman soldiers who would pass. There was a lot of merchants that would pass. There's just a lot of people who passed. And Nazareth was about halfway, so that was the stopping off point. You know what happens when a place becomes a stopping off point for things like that, soldiers and commerce. There's all kinds of illicit and other activities that Nazareth became known as. Thus, Nathaniel would say some years later, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? What's the answer? Yes. yes. In this despised city filled with the ungodly, acting according to who they were, sinners, there were some who loved God. There were at least two families, both descendants of King David, and living as faithful followers of God, quietly, faithfully, unknown to the thousands of travelers and residents, but known by God. In fact, the case can be very strongly made that God put them in that city. How can that case be made? Because 700 years before that, God had spoken through the prophet Isaiah that up in that area of Naphtali and Nazareth and Galilee, they were the abused part of the promised land. Because whenever a nation came in to conquer and attack, they would always conquer from that north direction first. 
And so they were the used, they were the beat up, and they, they pulled their defenses in around, is, uh, around Jerusalem, but they would just write off all that area. And so the prophet Isaiah said, that part of Israel that is sitting in darkness, they're going to see a great light. That's the place the light is going to dawn. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And there were two descendants of David through whom that one who is the wonderful counselor, that one who is the mighty God, that one who is the everlasting Father, that one who is the Prince of Peace would come. And here's her story. Her name is Mary. She was a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he, Gabriel, said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering. By the way, you want to know one of the great characteristics of Mary? When God said something to her, she pondered it. You don't read that about Zacharias. She pondered it. She chewed on it. She meditated on it. She didn't say this doesn't fit. Now, she may have not have any clue how it fits, but she pondered it. This word shall not what proceed out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. You shall ponder it day and night. And man, God will make you like the tree. It's planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. That was Mary. That was Mary. She kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. This didn't fit in any of her boxes. All her religious training. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And here's the particular favor that you found with God, Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. Who will reign over the house of Jacob? He will. Who's reigning right now over the house of Jacob? As this is said, Herod is. He will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. We sang that a few times this morning, didn't we? That's important to drill that one home. His kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And as we go on and read, this is a very different response than Zacharias's. This isn't one of disbelief. This is one of wondering about the methodology of how this is going to work. She did a lot better than Abraham and Sarah did a couple thousand years beforehand. 
She just asked, and the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He shall be divine. Now, you think Mary understood all that? I don't understand all that. All she knew was God's in charge. There's just a lot of God doing stuff in there. God's in charge. He's favoring. He's giving a gift. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her own age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible for God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's, in fact, read verse 38, whatever translation you got. Let's just read it together. And Mary said, That's a response that really lives us out, isn't it? It's a response that understand God gives gifts. He chooses who? He chooses what? He chooses how. That's His deal. And there's great significance because nobody knows how to bless a life more than God knows how to bless my life. And her response was just humbly receiving what God gives. Did she understand it all? No. But she said, just count me in as your bond slave. I choose to receive what you're giving. You will be God, and I will be your slave. I'll be your bondservant. That's a response that causes a person to move and to live the significant life like no other. Zacharias got there. Mary landed there even quicker than he did. So what does that have to do with us today? Well, nothing has changed. Here's the simple truth. God gives gifts. He chooses who. He chooses what. He chooses how. And here's the significance. Nobody knows how to bless your life more than God does. You agree with all that? It is, it is more true, I am convinced, than we could even comprehend. The greatest, well, let me put it this way. The first eternal gift that God gives to a person is to believe in His Son, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. That's the first eternal gift that He gives. That's the beginning of all the other blessings that last for eternity. And so I just say again to you this morning, if you have never received the gift of forgiveness, of being redeemed, and becoming a child and even a son of God, I beg you this morning to agree with God that you're a sinner and that He's a good God and Jesus is the Savior. And I beg you to say, I receive your gift of forgiveness. I receive the gift of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then commit yourself to living with open hands and open hearts all the rest of the days of your life with God as your Father. That's the beginning point. Zacharias and Elizabeth had already done that. I mean, their object wasn't Jesus, but it was God. Mary had already done that. But God wasn't done with them, and He's not done with you and me. You see, the place that you're working, the place you're going to school, 
the neighborhood you're living in, this city or the cities we're living in, they're in pretty bad shape, right? God has a foothold. God has his Zacharias's and his Elizabeth and his, and his Mary's. And he is saying, I want to give you a gift. I want to give you a calling. I want to have you have a significance in other people's lives that you don't think you can have. Will you just humbly open your hands and say, I will receive what you have for me. I will become a blessing. I will get the gospel to those people. I will be Christ to them as you call me to be. That's the way God works. In your devotional this week, one of the ways that we want to just try to live this out is that we want to ask every single one of us to begin praying and pray this week who that you would never think about giving a gift to does he want you to give a gift to this Christmas season? Who? Who does God want you to give a gift to? They're not expecting it. Zacharias and Elizabeth were not expecting it. Mary was not expecting it. Who? Who would God want you to give a gift to? Now, don't worry about the gift. I mean, don't figure all that out. Just say, God, I believe you want me to have an impact upon somebody else, and it will begin with a gift. I don't know what the gift is. You'll tell me that when we get there. I just want to know who. Just begin to make a list. You can have some fun with this as a family. Just make a list of some possible people and just begin praying for those people. I just have a sneaking suspicion that God knows who. What do you think? I think He knows who. And, and so just continue to pray and just cross people off the list. You're not doing anything unspiritual. You're just being discerning, okay? You're not saying, I hate your guts. You're just trying to figure out who. Who. And then the following week, we'll look at the simple application of what we're going to look at next week. But that's a simple application of, of being like God to the people around us, of, of believing He wants us to have an impact upon somebody through the giving of a gift this Christmas. Make sense? All right. Father, uh, thank You for these examples. Thank You that uh, You continue to work the same way today in each of our hearts and lives. Lord, uh, we're a people who... Um, so easily settle in to a faithfulness to you and a quietness missing the significance that you have for us in the lives of other people. So, uh, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would give discernment to each and every one of us this week as we cry out to you and bring to mind a particular person, maybe a, maybe a couple, maybe a family, but a particular person that you would want us to give a gift to this Christmas. We're not going to worry about what it is. We're not going to worry about any of that. We just want to know who this week. And so give discernment, Lord, as we even step up and just say, behold, may it be done to me according to your word. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.